I just love memory verses. So parents, please, please, please invest in your kids, not just for me, but for them, then, and send those in. Those are so wonderful. Okay, I, I, after, after we've been off of our series because we took time last week for Mother's Day for something different and special. So we're returning to our series where the Lord has, has really put on my soul that the Lord wants us to thrive. But let's get into the proverb of the day first. So I chose, I chose verse 27 today. He who has knowledge... Spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Now, that's great, Coach, coaching me there a little bit. So we've been in this series, Thrive, not just surviving, but thriving, no matter what's going on around us. And uh, I think the Lord wants more than survival. He, he wants us to thrive because you were meant to thrive. You and I were meant to thrive. And we've been in this, there's a passage that's kind of been the, um, the foundation for the whole series, not just for a message, but the series. And it's Psalm 1, starting in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And Jesus taught that too. He said uh, that we're in the world, but not of the world. In John chapter 17, Christians aren't supposed to be like people around us. But his delight, verse 2, is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, he meditates day and night, speaking about God's word. And uh, because here's the result that will happen when we do that, verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the river of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That sounds great. I want some of that. That's, that's God's picture of you and me thriving. I, I think most of us right now, or most people out there today, not us, but a lot of people out there today, they're, they're just not thriving. They're not. They're, they're, our culture is kind of hard to pin down right now um, because you know emotions are kind of all over the map with what's going on out there, and, and uh, it's hard to get credible information. And and so, um, I mean, I've looked at a few polls to say, what are people thinking about? And, and now listen, I'm just going to share with you what, what I've been reading. I'm not pushing a position here. I'm just going to sh- kind of just make some observations about what people in polls are telling us, what's being reported out there. Okay, they're telling us that a small minority of people are saying, oh, the virus isn't all that serious. Let's get back to work right now. That's a small minority. And then there's another minority that's maybe a little bigger, but it's also a minority, and it's saying the virus is, is really, really serious. Stay home as long as you can. And then the, the, the majority of people, in fact, it's a large majority of people, are saying, well, the virus is, is, is very serious. So are the financial damages caused by this whole shutdown. So we need to figure out a metered way to get back to life. And... Um, you know, I, what's interesting to me is that the, f- the first two, the two minority positions, are, f- are on the opposite ends of the spectrum, and um, they both are trying to recruit people to join their side of the spectrum, it seems like. And there's, um, there's something about those two. One has the appearance of being fueled by anger. They're angry. Come on, let's go. Let's get back to work. And the others seem to be, to some degree, fueled by a little bit of fear. You know, no, no, this is serious. We can't go out. Now, the opposite of, of, of anger isn't normally fear, and the opposite of fear isn't normally anger. So the spectrum is like, we don't win on either end of the spectrum, and I think there's a good reason for that. It's, the, it's, it's, it's that, that there is no approach to living today when God is absent from the equation that's going to lead to thriving. It's not possible. You can't thrive without God. And for those people who have learned to trust God and, and whose delight is in the law of the Lord, like we just read, 
instead of confusion and instead of the tyranny of the urgent, um, those people experience a measure of peace and a measure of fruit in spite of what's going on around us. They're not driven by circumstances. They're not driven by the tyranny of the urgent. Um, they, they prayerfully commit their steps to the Lord and they find the Lord's timing and the Lord's leading. And, um, you know, I mean, the absolute worst time to prepare for a crisis is in the middle of the crisis. That's just the wrong time. And we never know when a storm's going to come. And um, so for believers, we, we don't have to be able to predict the future um, to set a course for daily planning and daily living. We don't, we don't need to do that. Instead, we just need, simply, simply need to listen to the voice of God's Spirit and, and obey His voice. And, and when we do that every day, we end up in the right place at the right time. Those daily acts of faith and those daily acts of obedience accumulate in our lives to, to make us ready for the trials and ready for opportunities when they come. Jesus taught about this, and he did, in our, and this is our text for today. It's where we're going to leap off from. Let's pray as we get into the word. Lord, help us to hear the voice of our king. This, this is a quote from Jesus, our savior. Help us, Lord, to, to do more than process it intellectually. Help us, Lord, to process it into our soul and into our spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. And Jesus was teaching here that storms are inevitable. And, um, but we can withstand storms provided that we have the proper foundation to stand upon. Okay, so here we go, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I think every opportunity for obedience to God is kind of like a fork in the road for us. You know, Taking the path of obedience um, keeps us perfectly in his will, and, and it keeps us secure, it keeps us on track. Listening and obeying today is the key to weathering storms tomorrow. And this series on thriving is, is, is really it's foundational, and not just for uh, where we're at today, but it's really foundational for where we're, where we're going in life. The next few weeks, we're going to answer some common questions, maybe even some misconceptions about the Bible. And if, you know, if you've ever had people, maybe, maybe you know people and they're a little puzzled by because they see you, and your reaction to things, you know, why do you always trust the Bible? Why do you always go to the Bible? Why, why are you always believe the Bible? You know, and by the time we get done with this, if you can collect these things along the way here, you may not convince some people to feel the same way you do about the Bible, but at least they'll think they'll stop thinking that you're nuts if they do. <laughs> so. In, in the style of the next portion of this series, we're going to be a little bit more about learning instead of about living, and I, I think you'll understand that as we go. We're going to go over some practical and rational reasons for believing that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. So let's, I'm going to start, though, with the inverse. Um, some common excuses, some common reasons people give for not believing the Bible. Okay, and I'm going to build up to the top one. We'll start with the number five. The number five one is it's just a bunch of stories. You, hear, you probably heard that. It's just a bunch of stories. Noah's Ark, you know, a fish swallows a guy. Come on, really, Terry? You know, come on, man. Okay, number four reason. It's just written by men. Number three reason. Well, I've got my own truth. I mean, 
it's in me. It's, it's, you know, the truth is what I think it is. And uh, the number two reason was, well, it's, you know, it's, it's too old to be relevant. It's, it's just like, we've all heard that one before, I'm sure. And then um, it's, it's not scientific, which I'll deal with later. And then the number one reason is it's filled with contradictions. You, you have to have heard that by now. You know, if you've talked to people, you've probably heard all of these things. But here's the reality about this. None of those things are true. None of them are true. And not even close. But sadly, even some Christians sometimes believe some of these, these things. And sadly, believers, they, they end up back on their heels and you know, they don't have the confidence in God's word that they really could and should have. Now, if, if I've ever get invited to a tombstone party, you know, I don't know what that would be exactly, but if I ever do and you're trying to pick out what to put on my tombstone, here's what you put on my tombstone. He believed the word of God. I would love to have that be on my tombstone. Uh, hopefully that nobody around here will be around to do that for me because we'll get snatched up in the air with the Lord. But, but every faithful preacher of the gospel knows that the end game of preaching is, is how people view God's word. And God calls us to thrive. He, he calls us to, 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 to be confident, to be confident in his word. Everything flows from that. Isaiah 40 is an example. It says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, forever. You know, the weather changes, the temperature is starting to creep up, and the flowers are starting to bloom, and eventually fall will come, and the temperatures are going to start to drop and fall a little bit, and the grass is going to fade, and the temperature is going to go back down, and seasons come, and seasons go, but the Word of God stands forever. And cultures change, but the Word of God stands forever. And loud opinions fade, and, and, and people think they know, but the Word of God goes on. You know, your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, their ancestors, they come and they go but the word of God is the same. Marches on the same through the centuries. It's just the same. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three kinds of evidence about um, the Bible being God's word. So this isn't going to be like the typical message where, you know, in terms of my approach, typically I'd dive right into scripture and we'd be tearing it apart and, you know, putting it on the table in front of us and and looking at it. But but, um, first we're going to look at external evidence um, external for, for why we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And, and, and proving the Bible from within itself is easy to do, and we can, and I've done it with you as a church, and there's lots, to, lots of ways to do that. But some people look at that approach and they say, well, that's just a circular argument. So, I, I mean, you know, I've, I've, if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, I won't have to prove to you that I teach from the Word of God. But my approach at the beginning of this message, at least, is going to be a little bit different. And so we'll look at external evidence. Then we'll eventually get to some internal evidence, and then we'll get to some experiential evidence. And okay, so but first, external evidence for the Bible is God's word. Okay, number one, it's domination over all other literature. It's, it's, it's preeminence, it's, it's first, it's foremost, it's the, it's the highest. Okay, we're going to go down this trail first. The Bible is dominant in its circulation. Dominant in its circulation. Here are some reasons why. Um, the British and Foreign Bible Society is a group whose goal is to get the Bible into every culture on the earth and to meet the demands that they presently have for, for, public, public, uh, for publication of the Bible to print it. 
Right now, they're, copy, they're printing a copy of the Bible every three seconds, day and night. Um, they produce 22 copies per minute, day and night. 1,369 copies every hour, day and night. 32,876 per day, 24-7, 365. Here's another example. The Gideons. You've probably been in a hotel room and there's a Bible that says placed by the Gideons. They place more than 45 million copies of the scriptures per year into places like that. That's a million copies every eight days. A million copies. There are estimates that there, have, there are over six billion copies of God's word that have been printed. And the Bible has, has by far no close second um, in total sales. You know, more than the top 10, more than the top 20, more than the top 30, more than the top 50, more than the top 100 books combined. There is no worthy, even second place competitor in any way. And there are, okay, here's another, or some more ways um, that you would know it. In our culture, the Bible has more well-known phrases that people say all the time in culture, and they don't know it comes from the Bible. Here's just a handful of examples. All things to all men. Blood, the blind leading the blind. Can a leopard change its spots? There's a fly in the ointment. Writing on the wall. All these phrases come from, and hundreds more, come from Scripture, and people all over the world are using them all the time, and they don't know they're quoting the Bible. I love to hear people quote the Bible. <laughs> And, and the Bible is the most shoplifted book in the world. <laughs> I have mixed feelings. I'm thinking, great. I hope they get saved. <laughs> the entire Bible is available in 426 languages around the world. The New Testament is available in 1,115 languages. A portion of the Bible is available in over 2,500 languages around the world. 90% of the earth's population has the Bible available in its own language. Any of the other so-called world religions don't even come close. They're somewhere between 10 and 20% of, of the world's population can read their scriptures or their, 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 their books in, um, in their own language. A lot more could be said. Okay, so dominance and circulation. Number two, the Bible is dominant in its influence. You know, more books are written about the Bible. More books quote the Bible. More books assign, you know, you know, help assist in studying the Bible than all other religious literature combined. Okay, so it's been described as one of the greatest literary rivers of all time. Okay, so here are some examples. There are Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, Bible lexicons, Bible atlases, Bible geographies, bibliographies about theology, religious education, hymn, hymn knowledge, you know, the songs knowledge, uh, missions, books about missions, biblical languages, about church history, about religious bi biography, devotional works, commentaries, philosophy of religion, evidences for, for faith, apologetics. It goes on and on and on. There's this endless river of books about the Bible to help people study the greatest book ever written. Okay, that's one category of external evidence for, for the Bible dominance in its influence. Now, what that doesn't demonstrate or prove is that the Bible is God's word. It's evidence but by itself. It's just not, not anything more than it's evidence. It does, however, demonstrate this. The Bible is worthy of your attention. <laughs> you know, if you or somebody you know should somehow casually dismiss the Bible, you know, maybe they should at least consider that although they might have 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years on the planet Earth, do they really not have any time 
to thoughtfully read the greatest book that's ever been written? I mean, there's no book with any parallel of any kind. And and will they still not sit and spend a few hours and expose their mind and their soul to to the one document that has captured and, and shaped humanity so much, to the one document that has the potential to unlock their eternity? You know, it should grab our attention that not only has it been dominant over all other literature, but number two, the Bible has also been preserved against attack. Against attack. You know, the irrefutable record of the Bible's survival um, is external evidence of, of it being God's word. You know, the, the irrational hatred out there about the Bible. There's this sustained, unceasing attack against its message. You know, you can hardly find anybody anywhere who's out there attacking the Quran. You, 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 there are very, very few, relatively few books out there that would take down or, or a, a challenge the Book of Mormon. And here's the deal. Satan doesn't attack um, um, unless, except where something is gaining traction for the kingdom of God. That's where you see it happening. Okay, and notice first off, this is the, the attack, the attack of man. First category would be the attack of man. No other book has been so burned and abandoned and outlawed and vilified as the Bible. You know, th- that attack has come from Roman emperors and communist leaders and, sadly to say, some of our current American political leaders, and it has been for a while, been coming from college professors. There was a guy uh, named Voltaire. He was um, 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 a noted French um, person from the 1700s, and he made popular the um, public ridicule of the Bible. And he's known for having said this. This he said that he said, in a hundred years from now, Christianity would be swept from existence and pass into history. He made that comment sometime in the 1700s. But Voltaire is who has passed into history, and the Bible has continued to expand and grow. Fifty years after he died, the <laughs> Geneva Geneva Bible Society purchased his home. And they then started to use the actual same printing press that he had been printing his leaflets challenging Christianity. He started, they started using that exact same printing press to start printing copies of the Bible. <laughs> I love that. He was so vocal about how foolish the Word of God was, and yet he faded and the Word of God increased. And God has preserved the Word um, through centuries against attack, and you know, his attack and many, many, many more, and they continue today. The Word of God, the Bible, is is the great passion of this place, of your church. I mean, the Word of God, along with worship, is the central central defining feature of, of what we're all about here. The Word of God. The Word of God. The Word of God. The Word of God. It's what we preach, and it's what I'm defending right now. Okay, so we're working on external evidence. Evidence outside the Bible, um, dominance among literature, its preservation against attack, the attack of man, and now the attack of time. Time. People say, well, how can we know um, that what we actually have um, as the Bible is the same way it was when it was written? I mean, how do I know the Bible? How How does it stack up against other ancient literature? How do I know that the Bible in my hands is is a faithful representation of, of the original document? 
Okay, well, there's a couple of ways that scholars would figure that out, and they have a couple of, of measurements. Number one is, how many old manuscripts do we have? Are there lots of them? Because that's something if they're old. And then, how close are those manuscripts um, in terms of time? What's the time gap between what we have and um, the original? How much time elapsed between them? And we talked about this in a ser- service a couple months ago, some of this, um, but so I'm not going to spend too much time on it today, but High schools all around America and colleges all around, around America, um, they study Plato. And uh, nobody questions whether the documents we, are authentic that we have of Plato. Nobody, no, it never comes up. Um, we have seven ancient manuscripts of the writings of Plato. And the one that was written closest to when he was alive was 1,200 years after he died. So we have seven. And the one closest to when he actually could have written it was 1,200 years later. Okay. That's Plato. There we have probably the most attested or the most witnessed um, ancient document um, would be Homer's Iliad. There are 643 copies of that one, and the one closest to Homer um, was 500 years after him. So 643, 500 years. Now compare that to the New Testament that you're holding today. We have over 5,600 copies that are complete of that, and some of the portions that we have now, we've found segments of some portions of it that are less than 100 years within, within the first century. Um, nobody, nobody should have any real questions about the reliability of the copies of the New Testament documents that, that we have, unless they're willing to throw out all the other ancient documents that have s- somehow been embraced. You know, even a cursory understanding of textual criticism using the methods secular scholarship would set, even using their methods, demonstrates that the Bible has been supernaturally preserved, you know, through the centuries. And I think that's because of God himself, the author. Okay, so dominance among literature, preservation under attack, and then number three, um, we see proof by archaeology. Here's what happens. We send... Our young, our young people, after they graduate from high school, we send them off to college and universities many times, and um, they then sit under college professors who, who some of them don't even have the basic biblical understanding that most of the people listening to this message right now would have. Instead, they just stand up and they regurgitate what their college professors said to them before. And they say some crazy things, you know, Moses isn't the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You know, everybody knows that. The priesthood, the sacrificial system was not as complicated back then. They didn't know how to do that. People in Moses' day, which was about 1400 BC, didn't even know how to write. And a high school student gets there and he listens to that and he goes, wow, I didn't know that. You know, he says, you know, Pastor Aaron never told me that. <laughs> Does this mean I can go out and drink with my friends? And he loses his faith. And he starts to wander, and he starts to believe things that are just doesn't know what to do. There is an archaeology. There's a, there's an archaeological dig right now in northern Syria. It's been the dig has been going on since 1974. It's a big one. They've been going so far. They have found over 17,000 tablets. This is so far containing writing a thousand years before Moses. Oops. Here's the thing you don't hear. You don't hear the college professors of North America going back and saying, you know, oops, sorry. You don't hear them apologizing. 
and saying that was wrong. Writing, a thousand years before Moses, and the, the writings that they found included laws and customs very, very similar to what you would read right now in the book of Deuteronomy. For years and years, college professors, you know, well, hey, your, your Bible mentions the Hittites. There are no Hittites. Then over there, they're digging, and what do you think they find? <laughs> they find references to the Hittites, you know, a civilization that existed during the, the Old Testament times for over 1,200 years. I, I could go on and on and on with this. The point is that there's a lot of external archaeological evidence supporting the Bible. I want to move now to internal evidence, things inside the Bible that confirm the message of the Bible. And I'm going to start with this, the, this amazing agreement of the authors. Don't underestimate how big a deal this is. The, the, it's just amazing. I mean, I mean, it's remarkable when you think about it. I want to do a thought experiment with you, okay? So just pretend with me for a minute. You and three of your friends are down at Grand Mound, and one of you is standing out in front of, of Starbucks, and one is across the street at McDonald's, and then there's one over at DQ, because we got DQ cards for the kids, and then there's one out on the corner of uh, this street. Four different places. And, at the, and, and all four of you are witness to a car crash. A car crash is out there. Don't worry, nobody got hurt. And so um, we come to the four of you, and we say, here's a piece of paper and a pencil. Write a couple of paragraphs about what you saw. And you'd think they would all read essentially the same. I mean, you'd think that. But they wouldn't. Any experience will tell you they wouldn't. And part of the reason is that you had four different people and maybe they weren't paying attention as much as each other and they have four different views. One might hear the bang but look at the cars and see no damage. The other person might look at the cars and go, how did they survive that? Because they see different things. And so you'd have four different, different descriptions of this. And this is, just, this is just a car accident. There's nothing controversial about a car accident. Two cars or more, bang, crunch, crash. Okay, not so controversial. But what's the Bible about? The one that has all the agreement. What's the Bible about? It's basically about two things. Religion and politics. <laughs> Aren't those the forbidden subject at your house when the family comes over for Thanksgiving dinner? I mean, listen, we're not going to talk politics here and we're not going to talk religion here because there will be a fight between, you know, what will happen, just, I don't want an eruption here between the dressing and the turkey, right? So, these are forbidden subjects. And the slightest disagreement at Thanksgiving turns into this forest fire and we just don't want to go there again. And the Bible is all about religion and all about politics. And it's not four people who are writing here, standing on a street corner. It's um, 40. It's, it's over 40 people who, and it's not 40 people who go to church together. These are 40 people who don't even, haven't even met each other hardly. And it's 40 different, they come from different places. There's, there's, there are farmers and fishers and shepherds and Kings and prophets and pastors and tax collectors is all that come from this. And, and, and th these are people spanning uh, 1,500 years and they're writing on religion and politics. And the human authors have perfect agreement. Perfect. And we sometimes take for granted <laughs> the incredible agreement of the Bible. But but without some sort of supernatural um, presence here, I don't think it would happen. It, it's, it's, it's there because the ultimate author is God. Scripture, uh, Paul tells us in, in uh, 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. God's the author. Chuck Missler, who um, has passed away now, 
used to say, he would describe it like this, 66 books penned by 40 authors over thousands of years. It's amazing the agreement and the continuity there. So the agreement of the authors, um, that's internal evidence. The second one is total consistency. Total consistency. By now you've probably heard people say, oh, you can't trust the Bible because it's all full of contradictions and you know, make a note. The people that make those kind of comments, they're typically novices. These, that's something that a novice would say. Maybe the next time somebody says that to you, muster up your maturity. Don't become snide because it would be really easy to. And they say, well, you know, it's full of con- contradictions. I think the good thing is to listen and say, well, okay, well, can you help me here? Name one. And I think most people have not really thought about this. They're just parroting something that they've heard somebody else said. And, and if they do, they've mostly got a kindergarten-level issue and, and, and something that, that if you invest in your children in the Word of God, they could answer these kinds of questions. But if by chance you talk to someone who's, who's really thought this through a bit more, you can always say, you know what, that's a good question. Let me look into that, and I'll get back to you. And then you can spend some time looking into it, or you can talk to one of the pastors at the church here, and I promise you, we'll give you something to, to uh, give you come up with something good for you. But whatever, whatever here's where I'm trying to go with this is don't be on your heels. The truth of Christianity has satisfied some of the greatest minds, the greatest minds in human history. Get off your heels. It, it's, it stop thinking that Christianity is so fragile that the mental powers of your best friend is somehow going to cause it to collapse. It's just not going to happen. It's not like that at all. Well, here are five categories of supposed, air quotes, (laughs) supposed contradictions. Okay, number one category, the message. And here's some easy ones here. Okay, so you hear things like this. Well, the Old Testament says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but in the New Testament it says turn the other cheek. That's a contradiction. Can you hear the train horn honking behind me? You know you're in church when the train horn honks in the middle of a point. Okay, so they say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then it says in the New Testament, turn the other cheek. That's a contradiction. It's clear as day. There's no way around that. Really? <laughs> I mean, I've heard that before. And, and I, I, I think they haven't really read the scripture because, you know, I want to say, well, you're kidding, right? You have read the scripture. You know what's going on there, Right. Um, because it, that's, that, that second quote's coming from Jesus, and he's talking about having an attitude about getting even with people. Let's look at it. Let's look at it together. Matthew 5, verse 38. This is Jesus talking. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he's saying, you can do that, but there is something better Okay, and he goes into this whole thing, and he, and he basically gets down to it, and if you, you read through the passage there, but he gets down to verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. He's saying, come on, go the extra mile. You know, I mean, I don't think any of us had to ever attend um, a seminar on an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? I mean, we all know how to play Old Testament. We do. We, we, we got that down by age two. Somebody hits you, you hit them back. Somebody insults you, you insult them back. But here Jesus is saying, come on, come on, come on, come on. When somebody's insulting you, just kind of tone things down. You don't have to shout back at them. He was teaching you, don't shout back an insult. You turn the other cheek. That's not a contradiction. It's Jesus finishing an incomplete message. It's one part of the Bible finishing another part of the Bible. It's the Old Testament was the law. The New Testament is grace. Grace is better. 
Okay, nobody, nobody should get you on contradictions of, of the message. Okay, second one is suppose contradiction of numbers. Numbers. For example, if you go to uh, both, both Mark and Luke talk about blind men at Jericho, and Matthew mentions one blind man, and Luke mentions two. It's different. That's not necessarily a contradiction, and it's not a contradiction. For example, if I told you that Lisa and Rachel and I went to the store, and then later you were talking to Lisa, and she says, oh, yeah, Rachel and I were at the store, you would say, well, that's a contradiction. He said three, you said two. And I'd say, no, it's just a less detailed account. She didn't happen to mention that I was there too, but that doesn't make it a contradiction. It's just less details. You don't have to, just because you don't include every detail doesn't make something into a contradiction. And that kind of reasoning is only a problem for someone who is trying, trying to discredit the Bible. You can always spot the efforts of someone who's trying to discredit the Bible. They, they, they take the text and they torture it to get it to say something that it wasn't saying to begin with. Surely we can get past that, right? Okay. Another example of of supposed contradiction of numbers is there are places in the Bible, there's one place in the Bible that talks about um, 4,000 horse stalls and another place uh, talking about the same one mentions 40,000. Okay, 4,000 versus 40,000. That's a pretty big difference. What's going on there, Terry? Well, um, these are called copyist errors. There are a few places throughout the scripture that have through the centuries... Somebody was copying the Bible by hand, and they made a transcription error, and it wasn't caught, and it got passed along. And now, now there aren't thousands of these. There aren't even there aren't hundreds. There, there's only a handful of these, and um, that's why we always say that the Bible is without error in its original, in original manuscript, because there are some copyist errors. And you can study this. There's there's science of this, and you can find out there's there's here's the thing though. These differences don't affect the message at all, and none of them affect any major doctrine. Nobody's going to hell because of the difference of number of horse stalls um, that Solomon had. So, I mean, come on, get serious. Okay, contradiction of message, contradiction of numbers. Here's another one, parallel stories. For example, you'll hear this one a lot in, in uh, college courses. Genesis 1 says, God created the earth in six days. On the sixth day, he created man. Genesis 2, the next chapter, talks about how God created man. Um, he created man, uh, created the woman out of the man's rib. He goes into all that, and people look at that and say, that's a contradiction. No, it isn't. Chapter 1 is the big picture. It's kind of a flyover. Chapter 2 circles back, and it goes into that in more detail. It's more detail about how God created um, you know, man's creation, created man in his own image. But if you go to a secular college campus... You know, this is you know, th- where these kinds of things are being argued out and where there's uh, promoting secularism and humanism and they're pounding away, you know, Genesis 2 is a contradiction of Genesis 1. No, okay, so here, here's, here's another big one that, that they bring up. Uh, Matthew 27 says, Judas hanged himself. Acts chapter 1 verse 18 says, he was in a field and he fell headlong and burst open. Okay, that's a flat-out contradiction. Those two things can't be reconciled. He either died by hanging or he, he fell against some rocks and burst open. It's one or the other. You can't put those things together, you dopey kids who go to evangelical churches. (laughs) Okay, so here's a couple photos of the Hymnon Valley, um, which is where um, Judas died. 
and leave those up for a moment if you wouldn't mind and um, so people can look at that. But biblical scholars believe that uh, Judas hung himself off the branches of a tree at or hanging over the edge of the cliff. And in that moment of sad desperation, having betrayed the Lord, he threw himself off and the, the branch broke and he fell to the bottom and dashed against the rocks. I mean, how hard is it? But how many people have actually lost their faith over non-issues like these? This is one of the big ones, too, that, that comes up in college courses. Okay, suppose contradictions. Number four, history. I'm motoring along here. Things like, there's no such place as Jericho. They found it. There's no such thing as King David. They found inscriptions to, to King David. There's no such things as the Exodus. Well, they've found evidence of chariots at the bottom of the Red Sea. You can go online and watch the video on Google later. Less than 2% of the archaeological digs in the Holy Land have been fully excavated. Less than 2% have been fully completed. Evidence is there. Even though less than 2% of the digs have been, been finished, um, people say, well, it did, this didn't exist. That, he, there wasn't a king. They say this, they say that. They haven't examined the evidence and it's just arrogance. It's, it's really just, I don't want to believe. It's what Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 18 is talking about men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. It's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Yet the scriptures of Christianity have satisfied the greatest minds of, of humanity. Okay, suppose contradiction number five, science. Love this one. Example, a good one here is Joshua tells the story of the day that the sun stood still and, and oh, the sun could never do that. If it, if it did, the earth would explode and suggesting somehow that the God who created the heavens and the earth can't also hold them still for a little bit. What this really is, is anti-supernaturalism. This is worship of the scientific method. It's, it's Western world worship of science and, and humanism. Man is the measure of all things. And, 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 and there's, there is no God, there's no supernatural. <laughs> because once you allow the possibility of the supernatural, all things that we're talking about here are straightforward and they're easy. And likewise, once you don't believe that they're supernatural, once you hold to there's nothing miraculous, that there's no God, then what you're left with is a something-from-nothing, self-generating universe. And frankly, that takes way too much faith, plus it takes ignoring too much good science. Science that will lead you to truth if you follow it without instead trying to assign it to your agenda. Okay, another internal evidence. Agreement, um, consistency, and this one is fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. And this topic deserves a whole series, um, not a small segment of just one message. And I'll just give you a couple of examples because we've done this before. But um, Psalm 72, um, which was a thousand years before, talks about the birth of Christ. Here's another one, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Now, this is several hundred years before Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's another one, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Remember, this is hundreds of years before birth of Christ. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Micah chapter 5 prophesies about the birth of the Savior being in the city of Bethlehem. There are lots and lots and lots more. We're not going to do those now. But for hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, there are many very, very specific statements about him that were down in writing. Stunning, shocking, specific things. Now, skeptics would say or or said um, through the centuries, they said, you know, somebody added those. Those were added later until the 1940s when a young shepherd boy was in the land of Israel and he threw a rock up into a cave and he heard some odd sound. So he climbed up the cliff um, and to check it out what it was. And in this cave, he found um, a, a number of jars and um, they were filled with the greatest faith substantiating discoveries in, in, in Qumran. And um, he found these jars, these ancient jars, and with what came to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were not just scriptures. There was all kinds of things, you know, just secular things. I don't know if there were cookbooks or what, but, but there was a lot of scripture there. And um, even unbelieving secular archaeologists verified um, the scrolls of Isaiah that they found. And these dated hundreds of years before Christ. And that passage there, the one we just read, for unto us a child born, was word for word unaltered from the ones, the copies that we have today. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You know, recovered in those caves was proof of God's word prophesying hundreds of years before the Messiah came, where he, would be, be, where he would be born, how he would be born, how he would live, how he would die. The Bible contains lots, at least 60, 61 major prophecies. These are just the major ones concerning the life of Christ. And these were in writing hundreds of years before he came. And if you did, did a mathematical study, we won't do this today, of, of combinational probabilities, you'll conclude that the probability of any one person answering all of them or fulfilling all of them, and Jesus did, is mathematically absurd. <laughs> Even by using mathematics, the heavens cry out, it's Jesus, he's the one. Hundreds of prophecies over thousands of years fulfilled by Christ. Internal evidence about the reliability of the Bible under, under the prophecy, uh, heading of prophecy. External evidence, um, let's see, internal evidence. And the last category would be experiential. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my story. I remember as a five-year-old little boy, four or five, um, my neighbor behind us had a little girl about my age. Her name was Kathy. And her family went to church regularly, and I remember one day outside playing, and she knew I didn't go to church, and she turned to me, as little children do, and she blurted out the truth. You're going to the devil. I can still hear her voice. That's a quote. <laughs> and of course, we got into the typical, no, I'm not you are argument, but the thing is, she was telling me the truth, and I knew it. At that tender age, I knew it was true. I knew I had no relationship with God. And I kind of forgot about that until I got to about high school age, and there was this, just this season where I, had, I started to develop an unexplained, and I can't say it was internally driven, hunger to read 
God's word. I found out after the fact that my mother, who knew the Lord, was praying into me a hunger for the Bible. And I said to her one day, I went to say, hey, do you have a copy of the Bible that if I read it, I'd understand it? So she gave me a paraphrased copy, and I started reading the Word of God. And um, when, when, they, when Easter came, they said, hey, would you come with us to church? Out of respect to my parents, I said, yes, I will come with you to church. And I went to church, and the pastor talked about um, knowing God. And, and uh, I can just tell you that the Holy Spirit was speaking to me through that meeting. And uh, when, the, when the pastor said, if you want to have a right relationship with the Lord, if you want to know that you will spend eternity in heaven, you got to be right with God if you want to be in his place. And if you have sin in your life, you're not right with God. And unless you can live perfect, the only way to do that is to accept the pathway he provided. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So I'm hearing these things. And the Holy Spirit's saying, remember, Kathy, telling you you're going to the devil? This is your opportunity. I'm calling you. Would you like to know God? He loves you and he wants you with him in eternity, but you have to choose to accept that. <laughs> and I'm hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus taught in John chapter 6 that no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then I will raise him up in that last day. And in that church, crowded church sanctuary, I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit saying to me, come now, Terry. I was being drawn. I had no idea whether that was the only time, the last time that the Spirit of God would call me. I just knew that I was being called and I didn't want to take the chance that I would miss that opportunity. So I responded to the calling of God. And I went forward and I prayed with someone and I said, yeah, I need Jesus as my Savior. Have you responded? Have you responded to the call of the Holy Spirit who is saying, come home. There's an eternity to gain and a hell to avoid. This is your chance. I, I think for some who are maybe, believe, maybe listening to these words right now, that's happening. And I want to take a moment, pause for just a moment, and then we'll wrap up. We're really close to the end, but I want to give an opportunity for people to respond to the Spirit. So if the Spirit is saying that to you, and you're wise enough to respond to that call, that offer, that promise. Let me pray with you. Lord, thank you for calling people. Thank you, Lord, the fact that you love so much and that your scripture promises all who call on the name of Christ will be saved. Some are calling now, responding to the drawing that's going on that the Holy Spirit is doing. Lord, would you lead them in the way? Would you fill them with life? Would you put into their pathway people who can help them know you and love you and understand your word? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you. There will be a button coming at the bottom of the screen if you're following online that you can say, I want to respond to Jesus, and we'll pray with you. We're not asking you to join the church. Maybe if you have questions, we'd be glad to help you with it. That's, we just want to help you with that. So there's no other book like the Bible that grips us all. It, it, it's comforting. It's God, God's miraculously delivered and, and preserved word to you and to me. And it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to and dividing the soul and spirit, the joint and the marrow. It, it's, the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And I thank God that it has a convicting nature because... Um, it's been life to me. And it's both con convicting and freeing at the same time. 
My prayer for you is that, that you'll hear his voice today and that in faith you're going to step out somehow and in obedience um, and that because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power of your word in our lives. I thank you for it in mine personally. And I pray, God, that it will leap as life into the hearts of the people who will open it up and let it get in. I pray, Lord, and I, I, your word promises that your word never returns void. That means that, God, there is, a, there is something that it does, and it's effective every time. So I pray, God, for hearts to be willing to just spend those minutes with you and in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.